Okay, let's get our Bibles out, open to 2 Chronicles 24. 2 Chronicles 24, I believe that's on page 517 in your pew Bible in front of you. If you're thumbing along and you get to Ezra, just back up. And you'll come to the second book of the Chronicler, chapter 24. Appreciate those songs that Rod led us in. He was preaching this morning, got invited to preach at Fernwood, the church he pastored prior to coming here, and they were having a special homecoming service, and so he had the blessing of going and preaching this morning, and I always think, what a show-off. He preaches and he leads music. I mean, come on, give me a break. All right, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. We're all there. Father, we thank you for your word, and we want you to know, Father God, that we recognize the beauty and splendor of this passage and all of Scripture as it is breathed by you, given to us, Lord, for our edification and our instruction. And Lord, here tonight we have practical application for our lives that we desire to glean from this passage. And so we know we need your help. May the Spirit of God direct your word to penetrate our ears, and that we'd have ears to hear and hearts to receive, that we might leave here able to glorify you in a greater way through the application of this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, did any of you go home today, look in the, bi- look in the uh, bulletin, and then think, hmm, I'm going to read Second Chronicles 24 and get a jump start on w- what we're going to talk about tonight? Because if you did... You probably got home and you were scratching your head thinking, uh, it's, sometimes I'm preaching on a passage and uh, Lisa will say, well, what are you preaching on? I'll tell her the text and she'll read the text and then she'll look at me and go, what are you going to get out of that? Well, it might be a text like this. But the, the challenge or the beauty of this text is the context. And that's where it gets a little, um, you know, it, it takes a minute, but mainly because the names are so incredibly hard to get straight. But the context here is just, uh, it's, it's eye-opening, to say the least. It will rattle you. So in the previous chapter, I mean, I, I really struggle with how far back, to, I mean, there's so much, but let me just try to, to summarize this so we can pick it up in chapter 24 and know where we are. Um, there was a man named Azaziah who was reigning in Judah. These are the kings over Judah. And this Azaziah reigned for one year. He was wicked. Now we're in a sequence after Jehoram and Jehoshaphat where, it, where we are in this bad, sinful, disastrous sequence in the nation of Judah. And so Azaziah, he reigns over Judah for a year. He doesn't last long. And then when he dies, when he is taken out, his mother then begins to systematically murder every single uh, child of his and every possible heir to the throne. Now, her name was Athaliah. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Athaliah is actually reigned as queen over Judah. Most people don't know that, that Judah had a queen, but it did, and her name was Athaliah. And she is absolutely, positively one of the most wicked people in the entire Bible. And I would say that the, the most polarizing figure in all of Second Chronicles is this woman. She was Uh, Ahab's daughter and she was so evil and so wicked that when her son dies after only reigning for a year now think about this for a second she kills her own grandchildren so that there's no one in line to take the throne she's killing nieces nephews everybody she can find she's systematically killing them but In the providence of God, because remember, we're talking about the nation of Judah, the one who reigns 
uh, where Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Israel's in the northern kingdom. And so the Lord has made a covenant to protect the lineage of David all the way until the, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, comes. And so she kills everybody, thinks she's killed them all, and everything's fine. But what she doesn't know is that there's this infant son named Joash. And Joash is taken by the high priest. His name is Jehoiada. Jehoiada takes this infant, him and his wife, and they hide it in one of the rooms in the temple for six years. So now imagine this whole scenario. Athaliah kills everybody, thinks she's killed them all. She becomes queen and just... We don't have time to get into all the horrible things that she did, but it was horrible. I mean, she started out killing her own family, and it just got worse from there. The whole time, unbeknownst to her, there is a child who is growing right under her nose. And the Lord is, is, uh, is preparing and keeping this lineage of David going. And so uh, he grows uh, for six years under the care of the high priest and his wife. And then uh, in verse 11 of chapter 23, the Bible says, And then they brought out the king's son, so this is Joash. They put the crown on him. They gave him the testimony and made him king. And then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. So basically here's what happened. The high priest sees what's going on with this wicked queen. So the high priest could only... I'm just reading between the lines here. I'm assuming that after six years, either the Lord prompted him, the Bible doesn't tell us, or they just couldn't take anymore. It was so bad. That there's a seven-year-old boy, and things are so bad, they're going to make him king. You thought Josiah was young. So we've got a seven-year-old boy. So he calls all the guards uh, of, the, of the temple together, arms them all with the, the spears and the swords that are housed that belong to David. And it's, you can read all this in, cha- in chapter 23. And essentially comes up with a plan because he knows this lady's crazy. And so she's gone somewhere. And at the right time, he brings out the boy. So I don't know if this is the first time Joash has seen the light of day or not. This little seven-year-old boy, I'm just trying to picture this. They're, they're walking him into the room in the temple. All the guards are guarding all the doors. They put the crown on his head. They anoint him with oil, and they declare him to be king. You got the picture? So what do you think happens next? Then verse 12 of chapter 23 says, Then Athaliah, so the queen... Here's this noise. So the people start rejoicing and cheering because this wicked queen is no longer uh, over them. So she hears the noise of the people running and praising the king. And so she came to the people in the temple of God. And when she looked, there was the king. So she sees this little boy, Joash, standing there by his pillar at the entrance. And the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king. And all the people with a loud voice were rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And all the singers with musical instruments were all leading the praise. So Athaliah tore her clothes and said, treason, treason. So here's this moment where this crazy woman comes in. And then Jehoiada, now remember this name, the high priest, brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard And slay her with the sword, whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her. She went by the way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house, and they killed her there. Oh boy, we got some stuff happening here. And then in verse 21 of chapter 23, So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet, for they had slain Athaliah with the sword. Now... Now we can come to chapter 24. See, it wouldn't make any sense if you didn't understand who Joash is and how he became king and why he was so young. And if, you know, I I love to study the lineage of these kings. I love to, I've talked to you about this so many times, about how, you know, sometimes good kings beget 
good children that rule well, and then sometimes the opposite happens. And I love to study and try to glean principles from Scripture as to why some people, you know, are followed by the next generation does good, and then other people are a disaster, and so on and so forth. And so Joash comes from a lineage of terrible, terrible ancestors. All right, chapter 24, verse 1. Joash was seven years old when he became king. So now you understand why that is. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem, which is extraordinarily long. And his mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Now, what you should do is underline in your Bible... All the days of Jehoiada the priest. That's a very important clue. That's not a normal statement. Normally it wouldn't say that, would it? No. It would say all the days of his life. So underline that. It's important. Verse 4. Now it happened after this that Joash set his heart on repairing the house of the Lord. And then he gathered the priests and the Levites and he said to them, Go out into the cities of Judah and gather from them all Israel money to repair the house of your God for from year to year to see that you do it quickly. However, the Levites did not do it quickly, so the king called Jehoiada, the chief priest, and said to him, Why have you not required the Levites to bring in from Judah and from Jerusalem the collection according to the commandments of Moses, the servant of the Lord, and of the assembly of Israel for the tabernacle of witness? So essentially, we do this. We have a chest that we put out from time to time. We call it the chest of Joash. This is where that comes from. This is this offering that Joash takes up from the people in order to, we would use the chest of Joash to accomplish specific things that have to do with the physical property, the temple, right? Because that's the whole point here. The temple's run down, and so they take up this offering. So you can see sort of the, 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 the climate of what's going on, but you realize here's this young boy who becomes king, and him and the... The, the high priest Jehoiada start to implement change and, and things start going. So he puts it out and uh, people begin to give and, uh, you know, the priests aren't doing the job that they're supposed to do. See, normally they would bring in the money, but he doesn't do that. He just makes a chest so that it comes straight into the house of the Lord. Then he oversees the rebuilding. It goes into detail about all the structural rebuilding and all the things that need to be done and they get the temple all going and everything uh, is back ship shape. And uh, look at verse 14. And when they had finished, they brought the rest of the money. He was such a good steward and manager that they had leftover money before the king and Jehoiada, and they made it uh, and they made from it articles for the house of the Lord, articles for serving and offering spoons and vessels of gold and silver. And they offered burnt offerings in the house of the Lord continually all the days of Jehoiada. So you want to underline that again all the days of Jehoiada that's important now why are they making all these vessels because this wicked queen uh, had had done away with worship she had brought in uh, all sorts of false worship that she got from Ahab and she uh, had introduced Baal worship for the first time into the kingdom of Judah and uh, and and sold all the the implements from the temple, and I mean, everything was gone. So they basically had to start from scratch. And so what you see is basically this relationship between this young seven-year-old boy who becomes king, who, who then grows up and starts doing amazing things for God under the direction of the high priest Jehoiada. And Jehoiada served alongside their relationship lasted for 39 years I mean for 39 years they were together which is extraordinary now how many years did Joash reign as king remember 40 and so now we have 39 years that he's with uh, Jehoiada but look at verse 15 but Jehoiada grew old and was full of days and he died. And he was 130 years old when he died. I want you to just think about this for a second. 130 years. Maybe if you're not uh, accustomed to reading Old Testament narratives, you 
you might think, well, you know, in the Old Testament, people lived to be crazy amounts of years. And Well, that's true if you're in Genesis. But you have to understand that this is extraordinarily old. That when you think about some of the great people in the Bible that didn't live to be 130 years old. So God gave Jehoiada, the high priest, this uh, because the Old Testament especially equates length of days or, or number of days with, with faithfulness to the Lord. And so it's very extraordinary that he lives to be 130. And when they buried him, this was also extraordinary, in the city of David among the kings because he had done good in Israel both toward God and his house. This man, Jehoiada, was so revered as a spiritual leader, as a high priest, that when he died after 130 years, they buried him amongst the kings. Now, was, he wasn't a king. They bestowed the highest possible honor on this high priest when he died. Because he had done good in Israel both towards God and his house. Amazing. Now look very closely at verse 17. Now after the death of Jehoiada, the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king, Joash. Now Joash is now uh, about my age. And he has been the king for 39 years and now suddenly his right hand man is the, the guy who's always led him and guided him basically the, the only father figure that he's ever known the Bible even calls him his father even though he's not biologically his father is now gone and so after the death of Jehoiada the leaders of Judah came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them now here's what I wonder I wonder why the Bible says they bowed down to the king. I wonder why the scripture gives us that detail. So I started thinking to myself, I wonder if Jehoiada, the high priest, when he was alive, if he ever bowed down to him. I don't think he did. I can't imagine that he did. He was clearly the person, uh, the spiritual leader in the relationship. He was clearly the one who was uh, revered. And yet, now that he's gone, the first thing that happens is these leaders who just come out of nowhere bow down and the king listens to them. Now watch the sequence of events, verse 18. Therefore, they left the house of the Lord God of their fathers and served wooden images and idols and wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem because of their trespass. Now, this, I want you to understand the, the drastic turn that has just taken place literally in one sentence. Up until one sentence ago, we have a boy who became king at seven years old and did, he didn't just do kind of a good job. He did an extraordinary job. I mean, he was... He was amazing, and he led the people to worship God and reestablish the, the temple and did all kinds of great things. And then the high priest dies. The next thing that happens is these leaders come out of nowhere, bow down before the king. The king listens to him, and then the Bible just shifts gears, and they're worshiping wooden images. Now, I want you to look. Let's look at verse 18 for a second. Therefore, they left the house of God and they served wooden images. Notice, first what they did was they left the house of God. Secondly, they then began worshiping idols. Now, now from this point forward, this text is just going to give us literally practical application after practical application that you can just... You, you, that just fit right into my life. You'll just have to see what they do to you. Okay? But there's three categories of application that are going to come up out of this text. There's personal application, there's relational application, and there's national application. 
Or you could say it this way. There's personal instruction. There's instruction for you and me personally. Then there's relational instruction for, for us to learn some very practical principles from Scripture about our relationships with one another. And then there's national instruction. As we can wrap this thing up, we can look at uh, some things that it can teach us about maybe uh, where we are as a nation right now or why we are where we are. Okay? So let's talk for a minute about what does this show us so far. Before we go any further, if we just get to verse 18, what has obviously happened here? How is this person who has done so well for 39 years, how does his whole life completely, the train is completely off the tracks just like that? Well, Joash apparently has given his heart to Jehoiada and not Jehovah. Joash grew up with this high priest as a mentor. And somewhere along the line, see his idolatry, now listen closely because all this is going to come back and help you in a minute. His idolatry did not start in verse 18 with wooden images, did it? His idolatry started with Jehoiada. And this is the sinister nature of idolatry. That we can make an idol out of something good and it can produce seemingly good things. But guess what happens? When that thing that we make an idol leaves, it then exposes the reality of who we are. Now let's just, let's just think about this before we leave this moment. You make an idol of a church. You make an idol of a pastor. You make an idol of a spouse. You make an idol of children. I mean, my goodness, I see so many contemporary, real-time illustrations and applications of this. It's unbelievable. We live in a culture right now where child idolatry is absolutely rampant beyond comprehension. I mean, the, the degree to which... People I, uh, just serve the idol of their children is, is shocking to me. And what happens? Their children grow up and leave home or their children, you know, melt down and suddenly... See, everything, at, for, for years, you know what it looks like? It looks like you're the greatest parent in the world until the child leaves or the child has a some sort of a moral or cultural or whatever it is, something melts down and exposes the reality of the idolatry, and then suddenly the, the whole thing begins to collapse. I don't, I'm not the only one that sees this. You know this is true. People, people idolize the most insane things. I, uh, you know... Oh, uh, so, there's so many times where I struggle with, uh, you know, sometimes I, I, I turn the TV on and I just feel like I've been beamed to another universe. I don't even know, you know, I, I'm still trying to recover from, you know, just, just think about some of the craziness that, that is just on TV every day. I still cannot get my head around that there is a thing called naked and afraid. I cannot get my head around that. Like there are people that go, here's a good idea. We're going to get buck naked with a complete stranger and then go out into the jungle. Like, whoa, I don't understand. But I turned the TV on the other day, and I have no idea what this is called, but there's some documentary show on or something, and there's a cruise ship of people they're all on a cruise ship and with new kids on the block. Now, if you don't know what new kids on the block is, then you're way young. But anyway, new kids on the block um, uh, was like the biggest, you know, boy band. They were like the Beatles of the 
90s? 90s. Something like that. Okay, so basically what you have is a cruise ship. How did I start talking about this? There's a cruise ship. I mean, I was just looking at the TV going, but like the pastor in me was just like thinking, oh, Lord, help these people. So there's all these 40-year-old women who who are still stuck in their little 13-year-old world, and they're still crazy about this over-the-hill band like they're grown-up people. And they're on a cruise, and they're acting all ridiculous. I mean, it's insane. I mean, if you're going to idolize something, that's what you're going to. That's what you choose. I mean, people will worship anything. I mean, literally anything. So then after that, I mean, I, 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 about 10 minutes of that, once I figured out what was, I was like, is this happening? I mean, these, are, these people have children. They have spouses. They have jobs. I'm concerned about that. Okay, so idolatry. It's sinister. It's not always people on a cruise ship. Sometimes it, it rears its head and goes unnoticed and even gets championed because it seems to be producing good things. And it makes people seem like a very devouted, de- devote, uh, dev- devout spouse or devoted parent or a, a very great, hard-working, dedicated employee, when in reality the person is really, their job is their God. They're obsessed with climbing the corporate ladder and making more money and achieving more things. And it looks on the outside, the, the culture says, oh, you're so successful, you're so hard-working, you're so... Joash is the greatest example of that I know. Because I'm telling you right now, if this chapter ended in verse 16, this guy would be a hero. He'd be a hero. Everybody would be thinking, man, you want to be Joash. That's who you want to be. So his heart was really devoted to Jehoiada, not to Jehovah. You see, when a person doesn't possess genuine faith. When a person makes an idol of something that seems good, especially in a context like the church, they look outwardly wonderful, outwardly religious, outwardly successful, outwardly productive, even for 39 years. See, think about, we're not talking about a little, a little one-year diversion in life. We're talking about 39 years. So I'm thinking about the people that we've baptized here whose testimony is, I grew up in the church my whole life. I got married in the church. My kids have always been in the church. And then I realized I really didn't know God. That's, that takes an extraordinary amount of courage. But it's amazing. Isn't it wonderful to just be able to celebrate that, to sit down with, the, with them and film that, that testimony and to look across that table and realize how rare that is? 39 years, Joash. Looked just like something. He walked like a duck. He quacked like a duck. Everything about him was like a duck. But he wasn't what he appeared to be. See, informationally and outwardly, he had all the tools. Because his idol was serving him well. Now, is he the only example in Scripture? 
Because I just want you to really consider this reality. I mean, you're in here, you're, you're, all of us in here are related to somebody. Most of you in here are related to somebody who's in church. So this is a very important conversation we're having right now. What if Joash was growing up in your house? Would you sniff that out? What if Joash was your best friend? What if you hung around Joash? If you did things, would you sense that something was a little off? Is Joash the only person who had all the information, had all the outward appearance, had all the... How about, how about Judas Iscariot? Did you ever consider that at the Last Supper... As Jesus celebrated the Passover with the disciples, that all of them had gone through all the same things, experienced all the same things. And sitting around that table, Jesus said, one of you has betrayed me as a traitor, and no one at the table even knew who it was. Nobody. Not one person said, well, if it's anybody, it's got to be Judas. Nobody. They didn't have a clue. He went right under their nose. Now, we know that he's the son of perdition, but the point is still the same. They missed it. So this is a very sinister reality. Unbelief is not not always this easy, glaring thing to discern in a culture of religiosity. The Bible says in Proverbs 23, my son, give me your heart. You see, that's what the Lord desires from us. That salvation is transformation. But it it travels through the heart. It's a heart condition. It's a heart change. It's a, it's a heart issue. The, the, the Bible says in Proverbs 4, Keep your heart with all diligence for, diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. That whatever is going on in your heart is going to reveal itself. And see, I, I just, whoa, I wish I knew. I wish I had a book that was five inches thick of all the details of those 39 years. Man, the things I could learn from that. But I don't. All I have is what God gives us. Charles Spurgeon said this, if your religion is taken up to please any creature, it is not the religion which pleases the Creator. Joash was a good guy. Man, he didn't just follow the rules, but I mean, he really was, he was really a good guy. It makes me think of all the people that I've heard said about a boy, they're, they're just, a, they're really a good person. Like I say, well, are they saved? And the response I get, well, they're a good person. That's not what I asked you. I asked you, are they saved? It's sort of the, how, how does this last for 39 years? How does this, how does this propagate itself? Well, it's, I think, the, the principle of Laodicea. In other words, in Revelation 3, when Jesus writes that scorching letter to the church at Laodicea, and he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. What he's saying is, is that, The most dangerous place a person can possibly be is lukewarm, is to appear on the outside to have it all together, but to be completely spiritually undone on the inside. That's the most dangerous place for a person to be. That's how you can exist. See, you cannot... 
a cold person? Well, they're cold by definition. They're not, they're, there's no way a cold person is going to go 39 years under the radar. It's not going to happen. Not going to happen. In order to do that, you've got to be lukewarm. You've got to have one foot in, one foot out. You've got to always just be squeaking the line. You know, I was, oh, there's so many things it makes me think about. You know, uh, I was thinking about, I, I saw some new statistics about uh, the United States and church attendance. And really, um, on, the, on the outset, it would, it would really bless your heart. I mean, we are so, we're so overwhelmingly Christian in appearance, if you will. That the latest statistics say that 40% of all Americans attend church on a regular basis uh, uh, weekly. You know, you look at the statistics of other nations. Or I mean, you know, I'm talking about countries that used to be just, just Christian nations. In Europe, for example. Oh, there, you can't find a country in, in Europe that would get you over... 5% for the most part. And so when you look at the numbers, you think, wow. But what's really going on? Are we not, are we hot? I don't think so. Where are those, those 40% of the population are definitely not hot. I can assure you of that. They're lukewarm. And they look good on the outside. And so there's just going to be this massive amount of people who either perish or find themselves face to face with the returning Son of God and realize the true implications of just how wide the path of destruction is and just how narrow the gate that leads to life really is. And I think it's not because the Scripture's not clear. I think it's just that we have this supreme skill of self-deception. Joe Ash is a, such, a, uh, such a model of deception. Look at verse 19. Yet he's, so the, the Lord, how does the, the, the Lord respond? See, now, if I'm the Lord, verse 19 reads, So then God sent a dragon to snack on Joash. Or maybe, you know, Roast him like a marshmallow as he was shooting fire out of his nose or something like that. I don't know. I would come up with something fun. But what does the God, what does the, the God of the universe do? The Bible says he sends, he sends prophets to him. And notice what it says. It doesn't say that he sent. Now, this is very important. It doesn't say the Lord sent prophets to him. It says the Lord sent prophets to them. Now, that's important. To bring them back to the Lord. And they testified against them, but they would not listen. So it's Joash who is leading the people into idolatry, who is the one who is basically apostate, but yet the Lord deals with the people. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah. Now, who is Zechariah? Well, Zechariah is the son of this great Jehoiada, the high priest, who had been the most faithful and revered person in Joash's life. So here's what God does. Now, imagine the mercy of God. He sends prophets to him. They won't listen. They reject him. So God, in his infinite wisdom, sends Jehoiada's son to Joash. Like, Hey, 
Remember all the things my dad told you? Remember all the ways my dad instructed me? Remember all the things? What would my dad do in this situation? I mean, how powerful must that have been? The Spirit of the Lord comes on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people. And you want to underline, above the people. Another very important phrase. And he said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Question mark. Wow. Because you have forsaken the Lord, He also has forsaken you. So they conspired against Him. And at the command of the king, they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which Jehoiada, his father, see? He's not his father. His father had done to him, but killed his son. And as he died, he said, the Lord look upon it and repay. All right, now embedded in there is all sorts of interesting principles. First of all, I find it fascinating that when Jehoiada killed the wicked queen, I mean the most wicked person that I know of, he clearly and specifically instructed them to take her where? Out of the temple, not to destroy the house of the Lord, right? Remember that? And look at what happens here. But then the king has him stoned in the court of the house of the Lord. Hmm. So what, now remember, I said there's personal, relational, and then national instruction here. What, what else can we see about Joash personally? Joash didn't deal with God directly. He dealt with God through a human mediator. He attempted to relate to God through a person. To which you say, well, that's ridiculous. Nobody does that. Oh, really? So you don't think this morning in this very room... I'm going to be nice to you tonight. This morning is somebody else. It's never us. You don't think this morning in this very room, you don't think there was a husband and wife probably sitting in every section of this place, and the husband relates to God through his wife's relationship with the Lord? Huh? Oh, there's no doubt in my mind. Every once in a while, You come across a couple where the wife relates to God through the husband, but mostly it's the husband who in his cowardice doesn't have his own relationship with God, but he clings to his spouse. And he's in church, and he hears the same sermon everybody hears. And he's absolutely lost and going to hell. And his wife... If you press her, it's uneasy about his salvation. But she will do what we'll all do, and she will think, well, but you know, things are so, I mean, now he's coming to church, and na-na-na-na-na, and she'll start to all these things, but don't have anything to do with the heart. And just convince herself that, well, and I just, I plead with her to plead with him. The one thing I'm so grateful for is that my wife never, ever related to me as a saved person when I was lost. I knew that she knew that I was lost. She made sure that I knew that she knew that I was lost. Now, she didn't badger me. She didn't pressure me. But I knew that she knew. She was not going to sit next to me and listen to a sermon and 
sweat through an invitation, and just pretend like everything was going to be okay. 39 years. Let's say hypothetically that the Lord were to come back today. How many teenage children would go to hell because they relate to God through their faithful parents. See, this isn't a Joash problem, is it? This is a human problem. People do this all the time. And here's the thing. It looks so good on the outside. You grow up, you got faithful parents, you obey all the rules, you do all the right things, you, you look like the model child. But at some point, maybe it's when you go to college, maybe it's after you get married, maybe it's 39 years, I don't know. At some point, the idolatry is exposed and the reality of what's really going on shines through. Usually, here's what happens. Either they get out from under the roof of their parents, or one or both of their parents die, and they never dawn the church doors again. Because they don't have their heart is not with God. Their heart was with their mommy and their daddy. You see, these are just principles that just jump out of the text. It makes me think about the tendency we all have to raise our children and restrain all suffering from their lives. When, when did that become the model for Christian parenting? When did it become our job as parents to raise our kids in the most challenge-free, trouble-free, trial-free environment that you possibly can? Is that what we ought to be doing? See, Joash never had to deal with anything. You know why? Because Jehoiada was always there. What would have happened if somewhere along the line, maybe he was 25, maybe he was 30, maybe when he was 16, I don't know. What would have happened if all of a sudden some crisis would have happened to him and Jehoiada wouldn't have been there to, to clean it up, to fix it up, to tell him what to do? What if he just left him in that, in that tension? That he had, to, he had to learn to trust God on his own. That for once in his life, he couldn't, he couldn't count on Jehoiada to trust God for him. He had to trust God. Don't run in like the knight in shining armor every stinking time someone you love is in a trial. Let them suffer. It'll do them good. It'll grow them strong. They need to get punched around a little bit. They need to get beat up a little bit. They need to know it's a harsh world. You're there to make sure that you snatch them back before they fall off the cliff. You're not there to make sure they never get a bump or a bruise. Because if you are... You're hindering their ability to develop their own faith. I think that the real character of Joash never appeared because Jehoiada was always there covering him. Jehoiada always had this protective blanket over Joash. And here's the crazy thing. I mean... 
I'm just imagining that I live in Judah during this time. And I'm telling you, I would have completely been deceived. I would have thought, man, what a great king. Man, what a great high priest. I mean, you see, you really have to, you have to ask God to give you sight to see. Here's apostasy just, just brewing right in front of us. And if you just, if you don't pay attention, so what happens? Well, he kills Jehoiada's son, Zechariah. And look at the end of verse 24. So they executed judgment on Joash. And when they had withdrawn from him, or they left him severely wounded, so they attack him, they wound him. Uh, his own servants conspired against him because of the blood of the sons of Jehoiada, the priest, and killed him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but did not bury him in the tomb of the kings. I'm telling you, it's, it's, this text, it never ends. I'm telling you. There are so many, do you see all this here? Look at the irony. Look at the principles. Look at the, the personal, the relational, familial principles that are just bellowing out of this text. Here you have this man whose people bowed down to him as soon as Jehoiada was gone and he just rolled over for their because he wanted their approval and he wanted what they could offer him and he follows them into idol worship and then listen it's the same people that bowed down before him it's his confidants that now kill him because of what he did to the sons of Jehoiada and Bury him in dishonor after he did what they wanted him to do. Do you see this? What is the, what is the principle of sin? What does sin do? Sin promises us the world and delivers us nothing. It leaves us utterly empty-handed and useless. Here he is, the king. Everything's been going good his whole entire life. He's a 40-something-year-old man. And then suddenly people are bowing down before him for the first time. And he's so enamored with the praise of people bowing down and acting like he's great that he just shucks everything he used to do so that he can be their hero. He does everything they want him to do. And then the same people kill him and bury him in dishonor. That, that's what sin does. Man, it looks so good up front. Boy, it promises the world, doesn't it? Ah, I'm just sitting there and I'm studying this text right here. I'm looking at verse 25 and I'm just, my mind is just racing. Re hundreds and hundreds of conversations, tears running down my face, pleading with people, please listen to me. The grass is not greener on the other side of the fence. It's not going to work. You think you can shuck your problems today and it's going to be free and clear and great. It will not work. Sin lies. It's not going to pay. And they don't listen. And that's what happens. Oh, the lure of freedom. Oh, the lure of being able to live. The lure of, oh, it's just so, it, it, and you, you're, you're just sitting there looking at them like, do you really believe this? Do you honestly think that walking out on your family is somehow going to work out for your good? And away they go. You don't understand. My situation's different. You don't understand what I've been through. You don't understand this. You don't understand. No, no. It's not what I don't understand. It's what you don't understand. So listen to me. Don't buy that lie. I, I don't mean you, really. I mean all the people you know that are telling you the same thing they're telling me. 
Don't bend one inch. It will never pay. So that's all the personal and all the relational implications. That's really not all of them, but I, I understand. We can't stay here till 10 o'clock tonight. See how good I did this morning? Goodness, I ought to have at least 30 more minutes tonight. National. Let's just talk for one second. One simple thing I want you to consider. I want you to look back at verse 20. I want you to look at what the Bible says. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. And I told you to under, underline, who stood above the people. Now, now that is so important. God doesn't send Zechariah just to Joash. He sends him to the people. He sends him to the nation. And he says to the nation who has turned their back on him, who was once, now, now, now listen, hold, now you got to get this. Was God ever under a delusion about where Joash's heart really was? Negative. God knew before the foundation of the world everything that could ever be known about Joash. But for 39 years, God blessed the nation of Judah big time. They weren't led by a true man of God, but they were led by someone. Really, Jehoiada was the one who was leading them, and he was a true man of God. But the person who was in the position of kingship was Joash. God was not confused about who he really was. And God sends Zechariah to this people who, now, who were once faithful, but now who have turned their back on the Lord. Starting to ring a couple bells here. Ding, 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 ding. Hello. Is anybody alive in America right now? Okay. And he says, this is for every one of you that's all sitting at home like a zombie watching Fox News getting yourself in a big tizzy. Thus says the Lord, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Now, that is what God says mercifully to a nation who had once been utterly, sincerely faithful to God, but then had drifted through a sequence of events to now being faithful indeed, let's say. Going through the motions, but at least doing righteous things. Will you give me that? Does that not, is that not sound familiar to you? And then what God says to them in mercy is he says, why have you transgressed the commandments of the Lord it is, the, it is the absence of righteousness. It is the absence of, here's the thing. He's, the Lord is saying to this nation, he's saying, he didn't say, why have you not turned your heart to the Lord? He said, he said why have you transgressed the commandments? Why have you turned your back on what you know are the right things to do, even if you're not completely sold out to it, even if you're not living it out in every way. I mean, but the point is, your actions have turned away from the commandments of God. And then the Lord says, so because of this, you cannot prosper. You cannot prosper. It doesn't say that you might not. It doesn't say that you probably won't. God says, you cannot prosper. So what am I saying? I mean, what, what, what is the Lord saying? What is the application? 
before we get all jazzed up, this is my fear. Mm, let me see how I can get the least amount of hate mail this week. This is my fear. The evangelicals in the United States of America right now look to me like they're perilously close to drinking the Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid that will convince you that if somebody just says all the things that you want to hear, if somebody's just willing to bark out all the things that everybody else is afraid to say, but who has no moral or spiritual backbone whatsoever, but because it's better than what we've had, we're going to get all jazzed up about it and think that somehow God's going to bless America again. You with me? It ain't going to happen. That will never happen. I can assure you I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a biblical statement. The reason that that won't happen is because what we need is righteousness. Okay? So don't think that because someone will say something that tickles your fancy that's getting back at the people that you're not, that suddenly that's going to lead us to the promised land because it's not. Righteousness is the only way we will prosper in God. Do not ever, ever forget that. Righteousness. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, righteousness exalts a nation. You understand? Righteousness exalts a nation. See, I don't know where this whole thing's leading. I don't know. I'm having a good time watching. Because I'm just fascinated about the Bible, that's why. And so I'm and I and I'm I'm a hundred percent gonna engaged. And I told my Sunday school class today, I said, man, I'd be devastated. I said, I, I certainly hope that uh the the election we had uh last week that 100% of all the people eligible to vote in this church voted. I'd be devastated to think that some of you as believers didn't vote in an election. That's absolutely insanity. But don't get me on that. Here's my point. I don't know where all this is leading. And so it may lead to something. It may lead to a, you know, to, to some appeasement. It may lead to where instead of what it looks like that we're just careening into the depths of hell, that, may, that trajectory may change a little bit because we get someone in there who does something, some things that stop that trajectory. Okay? So what I'm saying is God may give what seems to be a reprieve, but you've got to understand God. His problem is a lack of righteousness. That's what he's looking for. Okay? Now before we all wring our wrists and what do we do now? Psalm 11, 7, For the Lord is righteous, he loves the righteous, and his countenance beholds the upright. Now here's, here's the blessing in all this. For 39 years, God bless Judah. With an imposter sitting on the throne. Why? So important. Because there's a remnant. The wheels didn't fall off until the day Jehoiada died. So ladies and gentlemen, here's what I'm telling you. Don't you ever give up hope in God. That as long as there are people, 
in this country or any other country that love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and stand for what is right, God will honor his remnant. And it may fall apart around us. They may throw me and half of you in jail, but I'm telling you right now, he will not turn his back on the remnant. And so as long as Jehoiada was breathing air, God's hand was upon Judah. And so don't don't drink the Kool-Aid. The solution to our national spiritual crisis is not in a party. It's not in an ideology. It's not in positions. It's in righteousness. So I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And I know this text right here is so encouraging to my heart right here. Because I know that as long as I'm on this earth and I'm breathing in this air, that God knows. He knows I'm here. And He knows what's going on around me. And He knows you're here. And so what we got to do is we got to lock arms. We got to get on our face before God. And we got we to gotta make sure that we're the real deal. The real deal. We need to pray like never before. We need to listen like never before. We need to be vigilant like never before. And we need to, li- we need to do the things that God calls us to do. We need to do those things. But God, he doesn't turn his back on his remnant. So I know that the, the thing to do nowadays is to, you know, you build a big church by having one service a week and tell a lot of jokes and do everything you can do to get people to bow down in front of you. I just assume preach the gospel to the remnant. No matter how small it gets, we just keep plowing away. Because God honors His people when they are righteous. Let's stand and bow our heads.